Welcome to the Cinephiliac Lounge. I'm Scott Kilroy. And I'm Pat O'Connell. And we're two guys who like movies. Every episode, we discuss a movie over a couple of drinks. Today, we're discussing 12 Monkeys and its inspiration, the short subject film, La Jete. A warning for listeners, there will be spoilers. But before we get started, maybe you should talk a little bit about us and why we're doing this. Yeah, we met a few years ago. You know, just for shits and giggles, because I knew I wouldn't remember anything off the top of my head, I found a copy of my Brooklyn College transcript to try and figure out when we might have met. I'm looking at spring of 1990, language of film. That sounds right. I don't know. I don't. I have no recollection of us actually meeting. Maybe we didn't. <laughs> that is very funny because I don't. I don't know either. Much much like Twelve Monkeys and La Jetée, the me- the subjective memory. I'm not sure when we actually met. I just feel like we've always known each other. You you were one of those guys I ca- I caught on really quick. Was one of the more creative people in the school. And I figured I could hitch my, my trailer to this guy. And when he's a big shot in Hollywood, I'll come and crash on his couch. <laughs> I'm still working on that. Yeah, that was that was definitely my first thinking. Yeah, so we've known each other a long time. Yes. Yes. And and we've often sat around at a, at an actual lounge or bar and discussed whatever it was that we've just watched or watched separately or watched at home. And always enjoyed it. And you came to me with this idea. You want to talk a little bit about the genesis of it? Yeah, I just always thought that our conversations about movies was, were interesting. I thought that you always had a lot that you brought to the table. And you brought a lot, made me kind of be a little more creative uh, to try to keep up with you. And so oh. I, I always thought we had fun to- a fun time talking about this stuff. And I thought, you know what, maybe an audience would like it. And uh, I'm a computer programmer by trade, and it was pretty easy to set up a website, and uh, here we are. Yeah, no, it's been awesome. It's been a whole lot of fun. Looking forward to tackling our inaugural episode, first one, 12 Monkeys. Yep, we picked a good movie to start. I, I mean, it's it's fun. It's almost creepy just how how relevant and how weird it is that this film, it's the 25th anniversary of 12, 12 Monkeys this year. Even though the film was released, had an early release in December of 95, its general release across the U.S. was January 5th, 1996. So we're talking about this very close to the actual 25th anniversary of this film, which is pretty awesome. And the its inspiration, La Jetée, came out in 1963, and so it's very rich material, a lot to discuss, lots to get through. I guess the first thing for our listeners who may have, I'm sure the people already have, have seen this film. If you haven't, you must. It's absolutely fantastic. I'll give a quick synopsis. Terry Gilliam's 12 Monkeys, written by David Webb Peoples and Janet Peoples. As the opening credits spell out, 5 billion people will die from a deadly virus in 1997. The survivors will abandon the surface of the planet. Once again, the animals will rule the world. James Cole is a prisoner in a post-apocalyptic future of 2035, where humanity lives underground. James Cole is haunted by recurring dreams of his childhood memory of being at an airport with his family and witnessing a traumatic scene of a very upset and beautiful blonde woman chasing after a man who is ultimately shot. He is offered the chance at a pardon if he will go back in time to find the army of the 12 monkeys, who they believe are responsible for a man-made virus so that they can get a sample of the pure virus 
to find a cure for humanity in the future. Now, Chris Marker's La Jetée is a short French film that inspired the 12 Monkeys. It is the story of a prisoner in an underground society in the aftermath of World War III. Because of his strong recurring childhood memory of witnessing a traumatizing incident involving a beautiful woman and a man at Orly Airport, he's offered a chance of a pardon if he will be the subject of a series of time travel experiments into the past, which he has a strong connection to, and the future in an effort to reach food, medicine, and energy. So those those are the synopsis of the two films we're going to discuss. The first thing I'd like to ask is, do you remember the first time you saw 12 Monkeys? And where did you see it? I do not remember. I remember seeing it. I don't think I saw, I think I saw it on video. I don't think I saw it in a theater. And I have no recollection of it other than enjoying it. My brain just drew a complete blank. When you brought it up, I was like, yeah, I love that movie. And I'm like, I don't know why. Um, <laughs> But so watching it again was great and it really came back to me. I don't know. I must have seen it near when it was released on video because I remember it being kind of a big deal amongst like the film nerds at school. Yes. But unfortunately, I have the same kind of story where somehow, you know, when we were in, in film school, I, I managed to watch. I try to watch everything. I saw so much garbage. I saw a lot of good stuff, you know, obviously. But I would watch anything very, you know, that changed as I got older where I, I became, I, I didn't go to see everything. And, and, you know, these days, you know, before the pandemic, uh, I probably saw three films a year and, you know, of the five that I wanted to see. But back then I would go to see everything. I would be at the movie. I would live at the movie theater. But somehow, and it's, I don't know how, because I loved Terry Gilliam. I loved Brazil. I loved Time Bandits. Time Bandits and and Brazil I'd seen in the theater. But somehow, some way, I did not see this film. So my first viewing of this film was renting it on VHS during film school. And it, I've always, you know, going back to it, especially this last time, I'm like, you know, I really messed up. This, I really should have seen this one on the big screen. Yeah, I would have loved to see this on, on the big screen because I don't think I did either. Let's go to the other part of this podcast. What uh, what are you? What have you chosen to drink for this discussion? Oh, okay. Well, I've just I've decided to drink the very appro- named appropriately uh, Monkey Shoulder. Ooh, which is a uh, it's a, sp- a space side Scotch. They they recommend you mix it with, use it as a mixer, but I like it straight and it's pretty good. What about you? That's awesome. I am drinking, it was a gift from a dear friend, Gabe, a Macallan, 12 years old, sherry oak cask. Nice. So also drinking scotch. So, salut. All right, Take cheers. a sip. Mm. Now, you're, you're, you're a little bit better at describing. I, I'm, very, I'm very good about just drinking the drink. <laughs> Not so much about discussing the drink. Dalit, you go first. How's your drink? Okay. So I get a lot of like berry flavors and I get a bit of, like a little hint of butterscotch. And if you've ever had Glamorage, it's very similar to that. It's, um, and the one th- interesting thing about the scotch is it's a blended scotch, which means they could use grain whiskey, grain alcohol in it. But they don't. It's a pure scotch, even though it's a blended scotch. 
That sounds great. Listen, what I want to say something that I, I don't think I've told you before. One of the uh, personal goals in doing this podcast is to get better at appreciating and describing and critiquing what I'm drinking. Because as I said, very, very good at just drinking it. Not so good at breaking it down. So I'm going to try. I'm going to try with this. This is the bouquet, the ambrosia of the sherry cask. It's, it's it's quite spicy. I like it. I don't know why. I probably will be told, but guys out there, if anyone's listening, I obviously am not an expert. I, I, I'm getting a little bit of caramel. I don't know why. Okay, that's valid. Hmm. So, 12 Monkeys, La Jete. Which what which which one do you want? You want to just tackle Twelve Monkeys first, and maybe yeah, let's talk about Twelve Monkeys. I have to admit, Lachete was a little bit of a, a chore to get through. I mean, I thought it was really interesting. Just so, if you don't know the for the audience's sake, Lachete is a series of still images. There's only one moving shot in the entire movie with a narrator kind of explaining what's going on. And sometimes the camera zooms in or zooms out, but it's it's just still images. It was a little tough to get through, I got to admit. I, I liked it when I find, like it, when it ended, I was like, wow, I could really appreciate that. But there were points where I was like, I want to turn this off because I'm, I'm just sick of the still images. <laughs> well, I, to, to, to be a, a nerd about it, I'm going to point out that when the movie starts, it's, also, it's, a, it's a short film. It's only about 28 minutes. The film, when it opens, it tells you clear out. Chris Marker doesn't really consider this a film. He refers to it to as a un photo roman. So he, he considers it a photo novel, which which is actually extremely interesting. And I can see that it, it is. It takes a lot of patience and and focus, but I, I can I can see in those black and white still images and the voiceover narration, there are some there are some things that I could see are very influential. The design, the thought. Even though I thought that Twelve Monkeys or Terry Gilliam might have been inspired by La Jete when he was doing the film, because La Jete has a lot of this a lot of images of the scientists wearing all sorts of weird like glasses or you know glasses that are like bizarre glasses that like lenses on top of lenses kind of thing and i was i was oh yeah and that he totally got that in 12 monkeys he has that in 12 monkeys but he you know i, I watched a, a documentary recently and he claims that he actually he did not watch la Jete bef before he while he was doing 12 monkeys that he consciously avoided it so i think it's very bizarre and funny that La Jete has this that you, you if you watch the two films, if you watch you guys sit down and watch La Jete and you watch Twelve Monkeys, you're gonna think like, oh, there's some obvious visual like references or 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 obvious homages, because that's what I thought. But apparently that's not the case, which just makes it very, very cool and very weird in a lot of ways. Yeah, that that's weird because I I would have I would have assumed the same thing that he he obviously liked La Jete and took certain like elements from it but he didn't that they just kind of turned out to be similar that's kind of weird and Lachete and 12 monkeys well all of the major beats in Lachete are used in 12 monkeys because you have it has a similar beginning you have a, a you know 
now since it's a photo roman and not a film a story told through still black and white still images but it, it points out it's this this is a story of a child who, who who was obsessed with this one traumatizing event so it starts at an airport now the airport's very different you watch la jete it's it's almost like a pier i think i believe jete in, Fr- in french means pier yes it does i believe it does too so the the airport is very interesting anyway to, to the fact that there's a a like a long because it's a long ass pier and then people are above watching planes below that go ahead and take off like it's not a, an enclosed airport it's all open air so it's very very cool and very different but it starts at the airport it tells a story of this prisoner underground he goes chosen and it's promised some sort of pardon if he will do this go through his experiment he goes to the past and turns out that the end of the film i won't say it now because we're going to discuss 12 monkeys the same exact beat is hit in 12 monkeys where it begins and ends at that airport around this one particular event the other interesting thing and most very important thing is La Chute and 12 Monkeys, the, the linchpin, it's almost this linchpin that they're both very tied to their referencing of Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Yeah, that is interesting that they both have that, and especially you know, considering that Terry Gilliam didn't watch La Chute. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm still kind of like blown away by that. You know, one of the things I, I loved about 12 Monkeys that I like all of Terry Gilliam's movies. I, could, I even like, even like The Fisher King, which wasn't, I don't want to say it was bad. It was not my favorite of his, but he has a great way of just making the audience feel uncomfortable. And they start, the way it starts out, Bruce Willis's his character is in a, in a cage and there are other people around him. Like it's obviously some sort of prison. And just the way that a claw comes and just grabs him and picks him up and just everything about that just makes you feel like I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's like that vending machine crane that just picks out people for quote unquote voluntary service. It's like Brazil and it's some definitely like Brazil where it's this total technocratic world where humans are not really in control of their fate. They're mere cogs in a machine. So yeah, it it definitely starts off with with that. It starts off with the memory. It starts off with the image of a of a of, of a young boy, his eyes, and then the 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 dream, and then he wakes up in that environment that you brought up. And then once he once he has to to get ready for quote unquote volunteer service, which is he has to prepare for going up into the surface world, which he has to he has to get like covid safe for this surface world the the the, the, that that get up is just amazing because he's has to put on like a whole condom suit then he puts on this deep sea diving kind of apparatus and then it's like he's you know covered then with bubble wrap and like a clear plastic hazmat suit on top of that yeah it's it's definitely it's it's definitely freaky and then then when he you know he after he goes up on the surface, when he comes back, the next shot of him is naked being scrubbed down. And it's like, you know, you go from this ridiculous costume of like that. I can't even imagine how you could move in that thing. And then, uh, you know, he's immediately, you know, just stripped bare. And, you know, some weirdos just hosing him down with a, with a brush. Yeah. 
yeah, they're like, yeah, there's, there's, you know, this movie was one for the ladies, you know, because there, there's no gratuitous <laughs> nudity or anything, but when there is lots of man ass in this film, <laughs> lots of, and lots of man ass, like dripping in like milky white. Like, so it is ridiculous. It's funny. It's great. Uh, like Bruce Willis, he has two different scenes of, of him, like, being like washed deloused and then brad pitt also moons moons the the audience and and, and makes probably every woman who saw it's heart swoon when he he's in the <laughs> uh mental institution and shows his ass so lots of man ass in 12 monkeys yeah i also think it's interesting you'd never find out what cole was in for like what what crime did he commit yeah i was that's funny i I went back and I was looking at it and it was like 25 years and he's there for 25 years. And it's just like for being disruptive, not paying attention to authority. I'm forgetting off the top of my head. But the thing that, that stuck out to me because the design and look of this film is very close. It's, it's much like Brazil, but it's also very close to one of my favorite films of all time, Blade Runner. So it does this, retrofitted look of the future where the the future is cobbled together from bits and pieces of of the past and so i i I immediately kind of thought about blade runner in those respects but in that scene where he's first brought to before the scientist after he's been scrubbed down to show his man ass they they say they call him an anti-social six which immediately made me think of nexus six Oh, interesting. Okay. Oh, Nexus Six is is the Roy Batty and Pris, the model number of the uh, uh, replicants in Blade Runner. Oh, okay. Sorry, you you know a lot more. I, I think your knowledge of Blade Runner is insanely deep compared to mine. So, yeah, that one that one I'm completely obsessed with. But uh, going back to this. So I, I don't know. I don't know precisely what he did. They never they never say exactly what he did, but I might have had notes somewhere. Where, but it was basically like he he was a problem in his future society. The future society, after being uh, you know underground, I, I know that we're seeing a pr- we we only see a prison, but it, it it's completely oppressive in every way, and it's very odd that the scientists somehow are the ones that seem to be running everything like that, that you never, there, you, there's no talk of a president or anything in that society. No, it's could be that the, we're only focusing on that portion, but it's still from what we're seeing in the film, it's a very autocratic, you know, technocratic world where only, only science, the guys who possess that kind of knowledge are the ones that are, somehow in control because of the promise that only science you know, science created the problem and the future scientists have somehow seized control by claiming they're the only ones who can fix it. Yeah, it's and they they don't look like a stable bunch. If you if you look at them individually, they're they're pretty creepy. Well, yes, they 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 all look pretty much like permutations of each other. They're just they're mostly all dudes. They're supposed to be like there's a zoologist, a geologist, an astrophysicist, I'm forgetting some of the others, but it's almost all men. And that the one woman who's very important to the entire film and the story at the end of the film, she gives her name is Jones, but, but yeah. And also the scientists and, and the film in the future, everybody is covered in plastic. 
like no matter what they do, there's they have their clothing or whatever, everything, the paper, the map that he's given to like find the ups, the you know the surface world, where he's going out to get specimens and runs across, and you, that that's when you see how animals have taken over the surface where he encounters and scared by a bear. And that's a, that's a motif throughout the, the entire film. It comes up in a lot of different ways. Some of which is very funny when he's in the day room at the mental institution, he, he sees a commercial about, you know, a, a bear for a commercial. My favorite one is after a couple of jaunts and he winds up back in the, in the future. And they're like, Oh, you did such a good job. You know, now we figured out where the, you know, Army of the Twelve Monkeys is. They've covered him in a bear blanket. The movie is just it's so layered in its in its its um its design that it keeps this recurring it's a it's a huge motif in the film or theme is you know, animals. Yeah, it's yeah, I would say yeah, animals definitely and also just like what what, you know, kind of subjective reality where you have Cole, Bruce Willis's character, questioning his own sanity in multiple times when he's in different parts, when he's in the future, when he's in the present. You know, him thinking he's crazy in the other in the other scenario, and then you have the the psychiatrist who sometimes seems like she's questioning, you know, her her sanity. You know, where they they refer they you know one of the cops tells her, you know, maybe you have Stockholm syndrome because she's siding with Cole you know, who kidnapped her basically. Yeah. As I said, it's very layered. There is, a, there is a lot of, there is a lot of technique in the story and in design, trying to make sure editing the, in every way, trying to make sure that the audience as well as Cole questions his sanity and whether or not what's happening is actually real. Or if he is, as one of the patients says, mentally divergent right there's a lot of referencing in the film like oh you're only thinking about that you you, you're saying that because you know you you think this is about a virus because you happen to have met goins in in the hospital and um he 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 mentioned that his father was a you know studied or was an expert in, in viruses so everything is there's very overt ways that they do this. And then there's very, very subtle ways, which, you know, this film, much like Blade Runner and the films that I tend to really get enamored of or obsessed with are the films that are so dense, so layered that every time you watch it, you, you recognize or see something new and 12 monkeys, uh, you know, getting ready for this podcast. I watched it. I had seen it a little, you know, a year before this and caught some things and watching it for this podcast. And I watched it again a couple of days ago. Every time I, I catch more and more. And some of the things that he does, it's very subtle where there's a point where he has a guard. There's the guard from the future. He's blonde haired. And he's the one that's like, uh, oh, when he brings Cole before the, the scientists in 2035. And he's the one that says, you know, are you going to be a problem when he tells him it's time for voluntary duty? There's a sequence when Cole escapes with the help of Goins from the day room and he is, and he's, he's totally drugged up and it's very hard. He gets out and he's trying to make himself, he's making his way to this elevator to escape. And you see a, you see a, a security guard. And when he first looks at him, 
the actor is the actor who's playing the guard from 2035 with the blonde hair. And he looks at the he looks at the elevator and he sees people coming out. He turns around. He looks back and he sees and it's a completely different actor sitting in the same spot reading reading actually. I, I caught this also. The in both instances, the person the security guard is sitting there reading a world news like like inquire that was like an inquire kind of. Uh, tabloid. Yeah, the, I, I remember the Weekly World News with, no, with Bat Boy. Yes, Bat Boy. <laughs> That's something that I, unfortunately, I think a lot of people didn't get to experience, but we were lucky enough to be at the time where we know yes. what Bat Boy is. But that ties into, so this whole, this whole notion, the, the film is, is, is completely packed to the kills with this, this theme or motif of the subjective nature of memory and perception can you can you trust the world that you're in so it's almost like philip k dick paranoia so subjective nature of memory and this film also is very it's which is also the subject of laja t but 12 monkeys takes it to subjective memory and subjective like cinematic memory and pop culture memory because the the film is is riddled with referencing throughout of other films or using clips from tv and films to reference time and stuff like that. Oh yeah. And I mean, the, one of the things that blew, that really surprised me was the film starts out and you're, you're totally disoriented because Terry Gilliam and the, and the script writers assume that the audience is going to catch on eventually that they're not spoon feeding you, you know, what's going on. And so you feel kind of disoriented in the beginning and then by the time he gets to the insane asylum and he's in the day room, you thought you were disoriented before and now you're completely disoriented. Just the way some of the people are acting and everything. Like, I don't know how anyone could go through that and be sane. Yeah. No, the, 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 the film is, is throughout, maintains a level of controlled insanity within the storyline and within the characters. Because there are points in the film where there's a lot of direct referencing by the inmates as to who's crazy, the inmates or, or society. There's a lot of movies, very um, anti-establishment, anti-consumerism in, in, in its, in, in many of the things that the, the characters are saying and pointing out. Yeah. And then, and I also think it's interesting that, you know, Goins, who seems like Jeffrey Goins, which is Brad Pitt's character, who seems pretty, pretty not mentally well but a lot of what he says is true ends up being true like he talks about his father and like his father's an important man and everything and you you know and you think oh that's just the part of the gibberish that he's throwing out there but then you find out no his father is really important and really wealthy and you know this this brilliant scientist you know which what else was he saying that was true that didn't seem it at the time yeah his his father uh played by Christopher Plummer, which as a side note, how awesome and how ridiculous is it to see Christopher Plummer with this foghorn leghorn Southern accent? <laughs> yeah, it, it was weird. I, I, the, the accent really threw me. He did an okay job with it though. Oh no, absolutely. I just, it, it, it really, it really made me chuckle seeing him, seeing him do that. In fact, knowing that he's British and to be able to affect that Jeffrey. <laughs> And like when when he's when he's giving his speech at the house when they're back in 1996 and Cole has 
has put Catherine and Rayleigh in locked her in the trunk. We don't know that until after, so he can go and try and confront Goins. And he goes to the uh, Christopher Plummer. I wrote it down because it just not only does it kind of, it speaks to the way that it references other films and pop culture because there's a lot of referencing, but also can, pointing to the t- traditional science fiction cautionary tale. But just he he's up there and he's like, no, nah, now nah, I don't have to tell you that the dangers of science or a time-worn threat from Prometheus stealing fire from the gods of the Cold War era of Doctor Strange Love Terror. So the, the fact that he's referencing Doctor Strange Love, it's very layered. Like I said, it's the referencing of like monkey business and time travel. But and even in that same scene with with when Christopher Plummer doing this whole thing and, and references Doctor Strange Love, Goyne says to Cole. He's like, oh, because there's a question of where, whether or not he remembers who he is, and he's going to tell his bodyguards to throw him out. And then when they're walking, you know, by themselves, the guy like, I know who you are, The Great Escape, 1990. So the movie, I, the last time I watched it, I was like, this movie is just packed with references to other movies as well, which ties into the Vertigo thing. Yeah, that's totally true. Oh, I also wanted to talk about David Morse for a little bit. Oh, creepo. He's a guy that pops up in movies. Like, he's never been a big star. He's, he's, like, very rarely starred in anything himself. But he's he's a great, like, secondary or third, you know, third character. And uh, the way they make him up in this with the blonde hair, like, even though he's got probably got a minute and a half screen time, every time he's on the screen, you know there's something wrong with this guy. Oh, yeah, definitely. When, when you, first see, you first see him, I think... At Catherine Reilly's signing. Yep, at the signing. And he starts going off about, you know, apocalyptic stuff. Yeah, he says something along the lines that cracked me. It was like, oh, you know, pretty much saying like, oh, humans are, you know, responsible for, you know, desecrating and destroying the planet. And and he says says something along like, oh, you're going to give Alarmus a bad name and point more of the anti-consumerism anti-establishment of like the 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 homo sapien motto of let's go shopping or something he's he's so creepy like he's just smiling yeah. <laughs> the entire time saying the weirdest stuff and yeah and he uh, yeah he, it's it's a it's a really good casting choice i have to say the cast of this movie was great yeah there's everyone is completely solid casting against to some extent casting against type I mean, Bruce Willis is was you know diehard, and he was at that point like the the man's man action star, and this is a very different role, and shows a very very different side to himself, and he got a lot of he got a lot of good critical response for the way he approached this character. Yeah, I have to say, I have a hard time with Bruce Willis. A you lot. do? I do. I, I'll admit that I love Die Hard, greatest Christmas movie ever made. <laughs> I, I'm not. Uh, and he was really good in Pulp Fiction, but a lot of movies. That he, I just feel like he plays the same character to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, the, the, the same can be said for a lot of actors that that we like or I particularly like. But I, I thought there was something a little bit. There was a little bit, a little bit of difference in how he is in this role. It's more the first half of the film. Yeah, no, I I agree with you. I think I think he works in this, but I think it's it's playing against the typical Bruce Willis. Yes. Yeah, the fact that he's so confused and he doesn't know what's going on 
And, and that's something, you know, in a way it kind of makes him very vulnerable. Oh, he's, he's, he's absolutely vulnerable, like both emotionally and physically, because even though, even though he's described as someone who's like, like a, 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 a beast, which goes to the animal theme, Cole is a beast. He, he can, he even, even drugged, he can, he can like crack the skull of like two officers of five that are trying to wrestle him down. I mean, he's a, He's a fucking monster, right? Physically. Oh yeah. But he's always he's always he's always bloody. He's always fucked up. He's always he's always like drooling on himself. Yeah, it's it's a it's a different it's a different take than I think he's. I don't think he's ever played anything as similar to this before or after. No, I, and it's also spoiler. It's the, also, like one of the only films where he's he's the hero, but he does he doesn't make it. You know. Yeah. And that's also very different. Brad Pitt wasn't he got he got a he got an Oscar nomination, but he didn't win that. But he did get a Golden Globe award for this, and I think he deserves it. Oh yeah, you believe he's crazy? I mean, you you believe he's it's like Brad Pitt's. He's kind of it's kind of hard to watch movies with him sometimes because he you know you just see him and you're like oh he's a big star, and in this I totally dropped that like i was just like no this is a crazy person that he's talking to yeah I, they had him working with someone to try to to get that 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 frenetic pace and he it, and he it, it it's really good he does he he does he does an excellent job and you know watching it there are points when he's in the day room when you first meet him he's kind of like in his own clothes he's where he's wearing his pajama pajama pants over his over his regular tan pants and then his pajama bottoms underneath like like it's layered different visual like the, the costuming is is showing that he's he he can hide his own insanity in some ways because he's very well spoken for someone who's shitball crazy yeah i mean what he's saying does it you know sounds just it's completely nuts but yeah he he's not He's not like hard to understand at all, but yeah, but, I I I loved his character. I, I mean, even when you see him later when he's at his dad's house and he possibly could be on medication at that point because he's not as manic, but he's still a little off. He's still not totally there. Yes, I I wanted to I wanted to point out something I saw and I didn't read about it and maybe it's obvious, but I figured out why he 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 looks so fucking insane every time you see him is he's got he obviously has he's seen he has a a contact in his left eye to keep one eye stationary oh weird i you know i i didn't notice that at the time but now that you say it i like thinking back on it yeah and it's huh. subtle but it's t- it totally works to have one eye that's completely cockeyed and and it's a one eye is moving and the other is not really because it's a contact oh interesting okay and also the first time you see him when he pops his head out of what what he was wearing is, is a, there's a cartoon noise especially in the day room everything that's associated with 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 goins is accentuated with a sound by cartoon noises even if there isn't a cartoon on huh but i wanted i wanted to talk a little bit about it's really it's really weird having watched this film about a pandemic while we're in an actual pandemic. Yeah. It's pretty uncomfortable <laughs> at some point. Like there's a lot of things like watching with COVID colored lenses, some things that would not have stood out to you when the film first came out or when we saw it on VHS ha- takes on completely other meanings or is much more important or, or salient now. 
Yeah, it's yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's a, it's an interesting movie to watch during the during the pandemic and being stuck inside. It's eerie in some of the some of the ways that it it's eerie to watch because it actually is happening. And so certain things that you wouldn't have thought that wouldn't mean the same thing back then like when James Cole is brought back from the dude comes back and he's, you know, deloused from being up on volunteer service. The first thing that the the blonde security guy says when he brings him to the 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 cabal of scientists is James Cole cleared from quarantine. And quarantine means something it has a lot more resonance now than it did back. Oh yeah. No, you're right. And there's other weird stuff like I mean, you know, that that wall that he's in when he gets in that weird chair. I love I love that in that weird interrogation briefing room that they have with that chair that slides up into the ceiling yeah another just one more thing to like set like just one more thing to knock you off balance and then they have that they have that wall that they they keep changing they keep post putting like um pictures and other information and headlines one of the headlines i I caught last i watched was shows a clipping shows uh christopher Plummer, and it says clock ticking no cure yet which made me go hmm (laughs) It's very, very COVID-19. <laughs> or or the other thing that I laughed out loud, going back to uh, creepy David Morse trying to, to talk to Catherine Rayleigh at the signing, when they first cut to it, there's just this non sequitur of this guy who just got his book signed by, by Catherine, and he's, and he's like, I'm going to write out now to get vaccinated. Yeah, it so, is creepy thinking about it these in these times. Uh, also, uh, like, just seeing Pittsburgh, like, devoid of people is... Not very comforting. Right. Um, I also want to talk about the weirdness of the interrogation ball. So you have this. So oh yeah, you have this ball, and it's got video screens, and each scientist and Cole is on that ball, and then they get the weird stuff where they got lenses or whatever. But it made me chuckle the last time I watched it because I was like, wow, this movie predicted Zoom meetings. <laughs> Yeah, kind of did. Yeah, just just as just as off-putting and invasive. To be fair to the twenty thirty-five future of, of Twelve Monkeys, there are a lot less glitches <laughs> than actual Zoom. No one freezes up when they're talking to Cole. Yeah, you don't have to tell people you're on mute. <laughs> and one one other one other COVID thing or recent thing that I was like, this is so bizarre. You know, it's very it's a it's a quick part in the in, in in the film, but and it's mostly I think through a headline. But there is a clipping when he's at the animal freedom for animals association headquarters, and he sees something, or maybe it was in the interrogation slash briefing room in the future, where they show a, a clipping of Goins, and it's it says senators rattled because. They had invaded the capital and let he let loose a hundred snakes. <laughs> oh wow, I didn't catch that. That's crazy. And I was like, that's kind of creepy. Going the, the the way that current events and the events of Twelve Monkeys bizarrely mirror each other. Yeah, that's a little frightening. Yeah, it definitely adds another layer to the movie. Speaking of layers, how's how's your drink doing? My drink is gone. Your drink is gone. That's yeah. It. I'm, How about you? I, I'm still working on mine. I, obviously, I'm talking too much. No, no, you're doing good. I better drink more. <laughs> yeah, I didn't pour a huge, huge amount. I just did a little, you know, this being Sunday and all, trying to uh, trying to be good. I didn't go crazy. 
I understand. I had a question actually. So when you watch the film or watch films in general, do you have a drink when you watch the film? Yeah, usually. Yeah, usually I do. How about you? Oh, I always do. I mean, to be quite honest, I'm not very sophisticated most of the time when I'm watching it. Most of the time, I'm I'm very like Cobra Kai, Johnny Lawrence. So like, just like, oh, time to watch the movie. I better bring out the old Coors Banquet. <laughs> no, I usually I'm usually drinking bourbon. I it's it's funny that I have scotch in the house because I usually don't. Through watching Twelve Monkeys, I was drinking um, Henry McKenna, ten year old mm-hmm. bottled and bond, which is a great bourbon. My good friend Tommy gave it to me, and I finished it off before the podcast. That was what I was supposed to drink for the podcast, but that went gone. <laughs> <laughs> that means it was good. That was just too good. Yeah, it was too good to sh- not hold on to. We didn't talk about Frank Gorshin. How do we not talk about Frank Gorshin? Because <laughs> he's he's so amazing. And Gina had never watched. No, Gina had actually seen the film before. Okay. And for, for the audience who doesn't know, Gina is my wife. And she recounted a tale of it was a horrible date that she had watched the film on. And so I think that colored her like remembrance of the film. She just was like, ugh, 12 monkeys. But I made her watch it with me and she really enjoyed it. Oh, good. No, she, she was, she, she was, she was very impressed and she, and she liked it and, and said, yeah, I don't know why I, I thought it was very difficult to follow. And I just wasn't into it because of the, the situation I, I was in, which brings up, uh, I forget, what was that article you sent me about the 25th anniversary it was kind of like talking to David Peoples and Terry Gilliam. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it was interesting. He, he didn't hold any punches. He wasn't, um, and I'll add, I'll add this in the, I'll add the link to it in the notes of the podcast if anyone's interested. But, uh, it didn't seem like he, he just kept talking about Bruce Willis making an ass face. Uh huh. I think, I think the word sphincter was used. Yes, sphincter mouth. I, yeah. Uh, which I just thought was hilarious. You know, after, after making this great movie and just having all these layers to it. And then like all you want to talk about 25 years later is Bruce Willis's face. Not being what you wanted, <laughs> but in the, in that article they bring up how difficult the material was for people. So the, so they the David Peoples and Janet Peoples did this. They they got the permission from Chris Marker, who through through a through a dinner with Francis Ford Coppola because Coppola was friends with Chris Marker, and and he just kind of mentioned off the cuff like. Janet and, and David would like to do this this film based on your uh, on Lachete. I think you should let them do it. And Chris Marker was like, "Oh, okay." And I thought it was going to be a big deal. The, the 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 article goes on to describe how difficult difficult it was. Like Terry Gilliam saw it and he got it and was interested. But he had another film I can't remember was that he was supposed to be working on at the time and passed. And then they couldn't get other other directors would look at it and th- they didn't know what to do with it. And I think John Seda. No, and then they dumbed it down at one point. They like tried to like put more stuff into it to explain what was going on. Which Terry Gilliam, when he found that, when he got that version of the script, hated, and asked them to go back to the original. But what were you going to say? Oh no, I was going to say the John. The, the article says that John Seda, who who plays um, he plays the 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 other prisoner that's in the cell next to him, Jose. I'm sorry. 
He's Jose. Uh, Jose. Yes. Thank you. Jose, he, he, he said that it, he says in that article, something along the lines, like I didn't understand it until I watched the film and, and the more I watch it, the more I understand it. Yeah, it's a weird film. I don't think it would get made today. Well, it's so great because it it doesn't dumb anything down. Like you, you either get it or you don't. And there there are more questions than there are answers. And it, it's that's what's interesting to to me is that when you think about it, it, it doesn't hand you everything on a silver platter, which I think is great. I mean, you, yeah, you could still have tons of questions about that. Any you could take any fifteen minutes of the movie and you feel like you want more knowledge of what's going on in that scene. No, definitely watching the film. You know, Catherine Rayleigh when she's giving her her speech or her presentation on her book and talks about you know this character from the fourteenth century that spoke in a different dialect and you know warned about the dangers of of, of a plague six hundred years later. I thought that it was cold, but then I remembered. Wait a minute, they've had they had they've had other people who've they've sent out before so at first i thought it was him and then then i was like oh wait no so the referencing on some of these things it, some of it is coal like the world war one stuff that she discusses but some of it probably was someone else because the the i thought it was coal but the the illustration shows someone who actually had a beard and and stuff like that and, and then there's stuff off the cuff like i don't remember the i don't know what the character's name is but the 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 raspy voice guy that he keeps hearing is like, hey, Bob, you got a prab, Bob? Who tells him about... Yeah, does that guy really exist or is that just in Cole's head? I don't know. Because at, at the end of... The, when you think of everything through, it doesn't quite add up because you think maybe it's in, it's, it's in Cole's head and, and that's supposed to like make Cole and the audience question the validity of what's going on and reality or whatever. But then he he does he does some stuff where the, that I think that character is 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 I would point to as one part of the film where you really just don't know right because he he says stuff that it's like oh you got he shows that he's taking his teeth he's like that's how they that's how they can follow you through the you know the transponder in your teeth which you know leads Cole to becoming what that that dude by the way that dude who plays the the pimp that comes in that towards the end or whatever I'm pretty sure he's the bad guy in long kiss goodnight as well oh really yeah okay. but when he says like oh that crazy fucking <laughs> dentist when he's taking out his teeth or whatever and then and then he, he he turns on a dime where then he acts like he doesn't know what's going on and when when Catherine goes to when Cole disappears after he's gone to the mansion to talk to Goins and he disappears when the cops show up and she's by herself. She goes to the, 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 you know, animal, the freedom for animals association by herself. And that, that guy, the raspy guy comes up to her and he's like, you gotta be careful. They're taking photos, which, which he says something and it's obviously true. And then he acts like he's completely, because in the scene previous, you see that they show, they put up new photos in the interrogation slash briefing room that says like, you know, because it five million die, like, is this the source of the virus? And then you see her actually do it. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. It's, it's, yeah, like, it's very hard to figure that part out. And I don't think you're supposed to be able to. Yeah. And then there's, there's a couple of things, there's a couple of questions. I mean, there, you know, there are lots of, there are a lot of themes and motifs in, in the film. Like I said, uh, there's animals, there's the theme and motif of eyes. Would you agree? perception and, and modes of spying and seeing like Cole's always being spied on. But one of the, the things that I thought was really interesting was glasses. Now glasses, it seems to me that glasses are 
somewhat a symbol of power or authority in this film because you have the scientists and you know of the seven the, the seven that he's I, I may be wrong in the numbering but of the the scientists that he's constantly talking to that that keeps sending him back into the past only one scientist doesn't wear glasses that's the woman and like the scientists in Leja T always wear glasses and and I thought it was funny the 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 that powerball zoom meeting ball that comes the the video screens also have like some some of them have like monocles and glasses on top of that like it's it's almost ridiculous and cartoonish just how much attention it gives to that yeah i didn't really catch that that uh, that's a good catch also when jeffrey is back at his father's house he has the long hair which is supposed to con- confuse the audience as well as cold thinking that he's the one in cole's memory in the airport cuz now he has long hair but in 1996, because he's back with his father and he's back in in like not in a mental mental institution, and he's back grounded supposedly in the real world with his father in a rich environment. Goins wears glasses. Didn't wear glasses in the 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 asylum. Huh. Yeah. Wow. You're right. I you know I I didn't piece that together until you mentioned it just now. But yeah, the the glasses is a big is a big part of this. And the last thing I'll bring up is Christopher Plummer because this one made me crack up. As Jeffrey's upset and he's like, "My father's given a give a very important address." When they're tell- when the, his bodyguards are like, "There's this dude who showed up. He says he knows you, and he doesn't have his shoes on for some reason, which cracked me." And he's sleeping, and he goes and Christopher Plummer notices, and as he notices that Jeffrey is kind of being escorted out, he takes out of his pocket the craziest. He has this. He takes out this this crazy like spring loaded flip opening set of like opera glasses on a chain to like look at Jeffrey. Like it's very bizarre. Oh, weird. I didn't catch that at all. Well, I'll tell you one thing that I didn't think worked in this, the love story angle, Catherine, Madeline Stowe's character. Like at one point she like kisses Cole and I was just like, I guess, I I don't know. I didn't see it. (laughs) Apparently, you're not the only one. The test audiences didn't see it either. Really? And yeah, and this ties into some. This ties. This brings us back to Vertigo. Okay. So the end of the film, they wind up in a theater, the Senator Theater in Baltimore, I believe, and gorgeous theater, from at least the way the movie makes it seem. And they they just happen to go to this theater is having a 24 hour. Hitchcock marathon and so when they first go and they're talking and and Cole says something and this this leads up to what what you were talking about but Cole Cole says says a line that struck me to my core as a as a as a cinephiliac he's he's watching it and he the vertigo and it's a scene where Judy dressed as Madeline is with with Jimmy Stewart Scott and uh, uh, Scotty and they're looking at this cross section of a tree and she's like, and she points like here I was born and here I die. And that's, that's referenced in La Jete when he points to the woman and says, Oh, I am from here. And he does that whole thing with the, with the tree. And the rep in that point, La Jete, it was a direct referencing to vertigo because chris marker was apparently enamored and obsessed with vertigo and it ties his whole theme the lajete uh, the uh, memory is a major theme in lajete it's also major theme in 12 monkeys but what cole says that struck me to my core is he says 
it's just like what's happening with he says something like i've seen this movie before and it's, it's just like what's happening with us like the past the movie never changes it can't change but every time you see it it seems different because you are different you see different things and that you know going back to what we're talking about looking at this film through covid colored lenses and during a pandemic it's like oh we see different things because we are different because we're actually in a pandemic and, and so going back to what you said that you didn't believe the love story, the test audience didn't either. So what they decided to do was in that scene after he he falls asleep, she she glues the fake mustache and the hair on him. He falls asleep and he wakes up and birds are on, right? Hitchcock's right. the birds. And he goes out. He sees Captain Rayleigh and she's just ordered tickets for the plane. But she's now the Hitchcock blonde. And what – the thing that struck me when I was watching is that it plays this music. Now he obviously just left from watching the birds, but the music is specifically from vertigo. And I, the, the the nerd in me had a bug up my ass where I was like, this has got to So I looked at the soundtrack and I believe, and I, you know, there are others who maybe I am not an expert in vertigo and I'm not an expert in 12 monkeys. And so we may get people telling me that I'm wrong. But when I looked it up and I listened to the track, the track that they chose for that scene of them like trying to bring this romance together is is the track is called The Past and the Woman, which I thought was amazing. And they try to use music to in in, in imbue this scene with this this kind of romance and aura of, of, of mystery. So you're not the only one who had that issue, obviously. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I I mean I, I love the movie. It's that's my only real criticism of it is that I felt like that was just tacked on. I, there w- there wasn't much leading up to that. Like, if anything, they were kind of somewhat adversarial until that point. Well, I, I, I want to ask you from watching the film. Uh, so, you know, Catherine Rayleigh keeps saying, like, I, I, I felt I felt like I met you know I've I, I've met you somewhere before. I've seen you before. And it's throughout the film until she, until that scene, she she straight out says, "I, I remember you like this." I felt like I've known you before, and I've and I feel like I've always known you. And and I don't quite I, I don't know if I'm not getting I wasn't picking up on clues or something. Why does why do you think Catherine really has this this sense throughout the entire film that she's known or met Cole before? Because she's the interesting thing is she's not the one who can time travel. Right. Yeah. She she shouldn't have those opinion. Basically, I don't know. I, yeah, I mean, I thought I thought that those like her mentioning that stood out to me, but I I, I just kind of accept, accepted it was never going to get resolved. I don't have an answer either. I it just I've been racking my brain to try and figure. I was like, well, did Cole maybe have a did Cole have Johnson to the past that he doesn't remember or we haven't seen or? But I said, but that still doesn't make any sense because it would only make sense if. And also, we should mention, I don't know if you're aware, I, I know nothing about it, but they did do a TV series on 12 Monkeys. I, I, I saw that. I've never seen the TV series. I don't know if it's any good or not. I don't know. But, you know, if I ever do watch it, which would be quite a commitment, I wonder if they address that in some way. Maybe maybe in a TV series, they do something where Cole winds up in the past before 1990, where he meets Catherine Rayleigh. That would make a lot of sense. Although it would be, it's weird that he doesn't remember it. He doesn't remember it. Yeah. 
I don't know. I, I again, I don't have the answers. Or maybe it's completely supposed to be a, a metaphysical, like they were made for each other, kind of soulmates. I, I don't know. I have no idea. But I did. That's why I I asked you specifically since you you were you know and and again I I, I get your point, hundred percent. It it's not completely organic. It's not totally terrible, but it's not completely organic. Yeah, it just seems it just seems like it, it just. It just struck me as the one thing in the movie that I was like, I don't know if I buy this. Uh, in a movie that has a lot of things that you could say that about. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's kind of weird that the one thing that I couldn't accept was like the most conventional part of the story. <laughs> you want to talk about the ending? Cole says something earlier in, in, in the film when he's in the day room and he's kind of he's drugged out and he's trying to write a love letter to Catherine with a crayon. And they're showing stuff on the on the TV screen of experimentation on monkeys and rabbits. He just he says off the cuff to Goins, he's like, "Look at him. We're just asking for it. Maybe the human race deserves to be wiped out." And the end of the film kind of proves that Cole is right because the end of the film, Cole makes a call to the carpet company or whatever, which goes saying, Hey, I'm not going to come back. And then Jose pops up and all these guys pop up and they, they give him a gun. Like you got to do this thing. Uh, you, you got to stop it. You know, I've, you know, this time you got to follow, you know, do what you're supposed to do. If you don't, if you don't come back, you know, we're, we got to shoot the lady. And Cole says, I'm like, Oh, so this is, this has nothing to do with the virus. This is about following orders. And and that's they the scientists after, you know, after all that Cole has done, all he wants to do is he just he just wants a chance at happiness. And now, you know, it may be not viable or or the best, you know, I don't know how he could exist in his own timeline, you know, that obviously scientifically right. wouldn't be good, but still their solution is to punish him by giving a gun so that so that they know that he would be killed. They set him up to be killed. Because he didn't follow orders, they didn't have to do that. I mean, they had enough information that they could have sent. They could have sent a whole team of people back at that point if they were worried, if they really wanted to stop the virus. Yeah. So after after he does all this, and they're you know the scientists who are fighting to help save humanity sentence this man to die just because you know he didn't follow orders. So he it's fucked up that. At the end of everything, maybe now they, you know, they have the 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 pure virus. They have the cure for humanity, but humanity, of course, they don't fucking learn. They never learn. Like they still commit a crime against humanity. Yeah, it's a pretty dark ending. It's extremely cynical. I, I mean, his films tend to be, you know, Time Bandits. Time Bandits is another time travel film of his that I love, which. Oddly enough, we're we're discussing this film for its 25th anniversary, but Time Bandits came out in 1981, like in November. So we're approaching the 40th anniversary of Time Bandits. Oh, wow. That also touches upon a lot of the same things where it's this movie begins and ends on the eyes of a child, eight-year-old child. That film deals with, I think, the kid's 11. It's very cynical and it's very dark, but it's more comedic than, than 12 Monkeys. Yeah. Uh, and fun. But it also plays with this whole idea of perception since Sean Connery plays both Agamemnon and the fireman at the end of the film when he supposed when he returns home. And it also has all the anti-consumerism, anti-establishment themes that are in, in this film, but it ends with, 
he he comes back through that adventure and he's left and he's his his parents touched the wrong piece of uh, you know in the microwave and and they're just fucking they're killed he's made an orphan at the end of the film so classic cautionary tale about science and meddling with the things you know man meddling with the things they are not meant to if you do go through time whether it's it's to have adventures and steal stuff with a bunch of midgets or to try and stop a pandemic you have to pay you got to pay right so uh, cold dies and that kid gets his chill his his parents murdered yeah that's true by the way just side note my mother took me to see time bandits i was pretty young she hated that movie. Gina hates Time Bandits with a passion. Really? I see. I like it. I love Time. I own Time Bandits. I own the Criterion Time Bandits. I own the Arrow Video, like Twelve Monkeys. I love that shit. Okay. Yeah. I I thought it was a great movie, and I thought the ending was really shocking to to a little kid for a kids movie. It was pretty bold. Oh, it's and that's why Gina didn't like it because it's fucked up. Just like the ending of Twelve Monkeys is fucked up. Yeah, I read. I read something. He said that someone asked him about happy endings, and he said, "My characters don't have happy endings. If they're lucky, they survive." That's pretty spot on and pretty badass. Terry Gilliam and his films are like the way the world is right now is fucking bonkers, and he's obsessed with crazy people because they make more fucking sense. <laughs> yeah. So overall, overall though, I have to say it's a pretty damn good movie. Yes, uh, definitely. I think it's infinitely rewatchable. Uh, you learn something. You it, it, it. I think it holds up on its own, right? It doesn't seem dated at all. No, I, I enjoyed it. It was a pleasure revisiting again and again. The future is history, as it says, and it's just it's jam packed with so much stuff. There's so much stuff that there's more stuff that I'm sure you could say or I could say, but um, I guess I guess we should wind down. You know, you hear the theme music, so that means we're kind of coming to the end. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. Our next episode's going to be quite different, especially in its tone and where we're It's going to be a hoot. We're going to be discussing, (laughs) continuing with the theme of animals from 12 Monkeys, we are going to discuss birds of prey and the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you uh, joining us for our first podcast yep and if you feel we got anything wrong or just want to say hi or want to check up on any notes come to the cinephiliaclounge.com 